Welcome to the Exploring Unschooling Podcast. For countless parents, the journey to unschooling has redefined childhood and transformed their family relationships. Are you curious? Together, let's explore what living and learning looks like without school. Hello, explorers. I'm Pamela Riccia, and this is episode number 235 of the podcast. It's the 21st of July, 2020, as I record this intro. And this week, I'm sharing part four of the audiobook edition of my book, The Unschooling Journey, A Field Guide. Inspired by Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey Framework, The Unschooling Journey is a weave of myths, contemporary stories, and tales from my journey. It's not a how-to book. No two paths through the world of unschooling have the same twists and turns. Yet, having a general sense of where you are on your journey can bring valuable insight as you navigate the challenges that will inevitably appear. I share this book as a field guide to the stages and characters you are likely to encounter in some form on your unschooling journey. So last week, we entered the de-schooling phase of our journey and found ourselves on the aptly named Road of Trials, a series of tests and challenges that the hero faces as they begin this personal transformation in earnest. On our unschooling journey, this is when we find ourselves challenging so many of our existing beliefs around learning and parenting. And these areas are distinct and meaty enough that I created a separate stage for each. In stage six, challenging our beliefs about learning, we confront some fundamental truths about learning. Depending on where you are on your journey, some of them may seem a bit out there, but just begin where you are with the openness of beginner's mind and start asking yourself questions. In stage seven, shifting from control to connection, we explore some truths about parenting. The parenting truths that are so valuable for unschooling to thrive are those that see the child as a unique and whole person. It's about moving away from the control tactics and toward the rich soil of connection that nourishes a trusting relationship between parent and child, between two human beings. Be sure to give yourself time to ponder these truths, to see what they look like through the lens of your lives. If you try to race through these stages, you'll miss so much of the value of the journey. And so this week, we're diving into stages eight and nine. You can think of your de-schooling story to this point as working through much of the nuts and bolts of unschooling, the hands-on details of living unschooling day to day. And now things are going to get really interesting. And for listeners who prefer interview-style episodes, this week I've selected episode number 154, Unschooling Dads and Documentaries with Jeremy Stewart, which was first released in December of 2018. Jeremy is an unschooling dad and video editor who also directed and co-produced the documentary films Class Dismissed and Self-Taught, which looks at the question, what happens when they become adults? I really enjoyed our conversation, and I hope you have a chance to check it out. You'll find the link to the episode in the show notes or just search your favorite podcast app for episode 154. As a personal update, it's been a pretty smooth week for me. I'm having a lot of fun revisiting the Unschooling Journey book as I record it for the podcast. And I really appreciate hearing from listeners that you're enjoying it too. Thanks very much. And I'm also really enjoying hanging out in the Living Joyfully Network. Such rich conversations happening. 
And it's fun to hear what unschooling kids are getting up to nowadays. Before we get to the book, I want to take a moment to thank everyone who has chosen to support the podcast through Patreon. And a big welcome to new patrons, Suzanne Truchon and Taya Spearman. Hi, Suzanne. Hi, Taya. I deeply appreciate all my patrons. Your generous support not only lets me know that you enjoy the show and want it to continue, it allows me to spend time creating episodes every week and to keep the podcast archive freely available to anyone who's curious and wants to explore the fascinating world of unschooling. If you'd like to join my community of patrons and scoop up some great rewards along the way, check out the Exploring Unschooling page at patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash exploring unschooling. And now let's dive into part four of my book, The Unschooling Journey of Field Guide. Stage eight, accepting the value of all experiences. Moving Beyond Judgment Over the last two stages, you've confronted a lot of conventional wisdom around learning and parenting. You've worked to replace school and curriculum-based learning with learning through living, helping your children follow their curiosity and engage in their interests and passions. You've also taken great strides in replacing control with connection in your relationships with your children taking each moment as it comes and working together to find a path forward that meshes reasonably well with everyone involved. And you've started to see some of the beautiful ways in which these truths play out with your children. I bet there have been moments when you were amazed by their insight and choices, and times when you played with your discomfort to learn more about it. Your trust in the process of unschooling is growing as you add your personal experience to the mix, stirring it in with your initial intellectual understanding. And you've gained some well-earned confidence through navigating the twists and turns of the journey so far. You can think of your de-schooling story to this point as working through much of the nuts and bolts of unschooling, the hands-on details of living unschooling day-to-day. You see your children actively learning without curriculum or formal instruction, following their curiosity and flowing from one activity to the next, sometimes quickly, sometimes spending an extended amount of time focused on one thing in particular. Saying yes comes more easily to you, as does taking the time to solicit your children's perspectives, bringing their needs and wishes more thoughtfully into the conversation. Now things get really interesting. As our understanding of our new world of unschooling grows, we are naturally drawn to digging deeper. I say naturally because, as I mentioned back in the introduction, our journey turns out to be about so much more than unschooling. We are exploring what it means to be a human being living fully in the world, in this case, through the lens of unschooling. Campbell's journey framework is descriptive, not prescriptive meaning he looked at a wide range of stories and deduced their commonalities rather than coming up with the journey first and trying to find stories that fit. These patterns are how human beings are wired. I love how Jonathan Gottschall described it in his book, The Storytelling Animal. Quote, if you haven't noticed this before, don't despair. 
Story is for a human as water is for a fish, all encompassing and not quite palpable. End quote. The Universal Mother. Campbell calls this stage of our story the meeting with the goddess. In myths and stories, the hero must be spiritually prepared to meet this revered goddess, the Universal Mother, who represents the whole cycle of life. If not yet ready, the hero is only able to see aspects of her. To meet her in her true form is to rise to her challenge and be able to contemplate the entire birth-death cycle she represents with equanimity. The ups and downs, the good and the bad, cosmic creation and destruction. To be able to hold both these seemingly opposing ideas in your mind with comparable appreciation. Kali, from Hindu mythology, is a great example of the kind of goddess you meet in this stage. As the goddess of time, creation, and destruction, she represents both the benevolence of a caring, comforting mother and the fury of an aggressive, punishing one, as well as the expanse of time that contains them both. You've probably heard the adage, change is the only constant in life. Well, Callie's forearms represent the rhythm of this change, creation and destruction, birth and death, good and bad. Typically, her two left hands hold a bloody sword and a severed head, while her two right hands depict protection and compassion. When we look at Callie's right side, we see good. When looking at her left, we see bad. If we aren't yet ready to see her in her true form, we see one side or the other. But when we are ready to grasp the truth that lies at the heart of this stage, we see her full nature. According to Hindu myth, Raktabija, whose name means the seed of blood, was a demon who received a boon or blessing from Brahma, the creator god, that meant every time a drop of his blood touched the ground, a duplicate of himself would be created. Raktabija was a fearsome demon, causing a lot of trouble for both people and gods, but every time the gods tried to vanquish him, the battlefield became littered with his clones. In desperation, the gods approach Shiva, one of the three gods responsible for the creation, upkeep, and destruction of the world. But he was deep in meditation, and they were loath to disturb him. They turned to Parvati, his wife, and asked for her help in defeating the demon Raktabija. Parvati agreed and assumed the form of goddess Kali to do battle. Kali was fierce, with sharp teeth and wild hair. When she appeared on the battlefield, she struck fear into Raktabija for the first time. Understanding his advantage, Kali told the gods to attack the demon and then spread her tongue to cover the whole battlefield so that not one drop of his blood touched the ground. Unable to reproduce, Raktabija was finally vanquished by the gods. In another version of the story, it was Kali herself who cut off his head and drank all of his blood. Having consumed all of Raktabija's blood, Kali transformed into a destructive force herself, killing anyone who crossed her path and decorating herself with trophies of battle, the heads and limbs of her victims. The gods, frightened and unable to calm her, decided to arouse Shiva from his meditation and asked him to intervene. Shiva found Kali and threw himself at her feet. 
which eventually calmed her, and she embraced him, shedding her deadly form. This story is just one of the creation myths that surround Kali. We see how she came into being, with Parvati transforming into Kali to help the gods defeat the demon Raktabija. Seeing a way to outwit the demon's trick, Kali saves the day by drinking all of his spilled blood so he may be defeated, but as a result, transforms into a destructive force, killing anyone who crosses her path. Eventually, her husband, Shiva, is able to calm her down and she transforms into a gentler form. In her story, we see the cycle of creation, destruction, and back again in the fullness of time. In fact, Kali is the feminine word for time in Sanskrit. She is the personification of time in Hindu mythology. It's a captivating story, but how does it relate to our unschooling journey? Preparing to meet our Kali. All that we've learned on our journey so far about the world of unschooling has prepared us for this stage. We've been living our unschooling truths about learning and parenting for a while now. We've seen them play out in our lives with our children, and we have some real experience under our belt. As insatiably curious human beings, we continue to ask ourselves why. As we continue to dig into these truths to better understand them, we soon catch a glimpse of what lies beneath. We start to see the connections between our unschooling perspective on why quitting things is not bad and why saying yes more is not bad and why our children seemingly doing nothing is not bad. We notice that when we didn't stop our children because we feared they were making a bad choice, most often they went on to happily engage in the activity, see how it played out, and incorporate that experience next time. In other words, we saw them learning. A lot. <laughs> By giving our days the time to unfold more naturally, we've seen new and interesting things take root in the weight of destruction and upset many times. From a fallen block tower springs a taller and sturdier one. From highly anticipated plans falling through emerges a spontaneous trip to the park or a cuddly movie day, which turns out to be just what was needed. Without knowing it, we have been thoroughly preparing ourselves for this meeting. Moving beyond good and bad. Over time, we find ourselves no longer getting so angry when things go badly. Experience tells us that something new and interesting may soon evolve to take its place. Quote, when one door closes, another opens. But we often look so long and so regretfully upon the closed door that we do not see the one which has opened for us. End quote. This quote is commonly attributed to Alexander Graham Bell, and it succinctly describes life before this encounter with the goddess. We don't realize the connection between destruction and creation, between good and bad on the continuum of time. This is the wisdom that the stories of Kali and other cosmic mother goddesses are meant to convey to us on our life journey. Rather than being tossed around by the ups and downs of life, we now see the value of and connection between those moments. We have opened ourselves up to the bigger picture of life and the cosmos, and we're learning this indispensable aspect of being human through our unschooling journey. How cool is that? 
So we have been unschooling long enough now that we recognize the connections between the ups and downs of life, and we've come to understand that we gain valuable insights from both kinds of moments. We know that eventually ups will follow downs and vice versa. We've also experienced the cycle enough times to learn that trying to rush through the down times doesn't work. We can't pry open a door that doesn't want to give. That doesn't mean passively sitting back and waiting, though. In that case, you're likely to miss seeing the door down the hall swing open. Be attentive. Maybe knock on a door or two or three. Wander up and down the hallway so you notice if one's ajar. Listen in case you hear the click of a door being unlocked. Eventually, something happens and things move forward, maybe in unexpected ways, and often in more interesting ways than we had imagined. That small, beaten-up-looking door at the far end of the hall may open up to possibilities that fit you like a glove. And this applies to our children as well. In fact, I distinctly remember that I first started making these connections in relation to my children's lives, not my own. Each time I chose to stretch my comfort zones and follow them where they were eager to go, I saw them learning so much, not only about the situation, but also about themselves, both when things went well and when they didn't. Their self-awareness soared. I was humbled, seeing that my initial predictions, which I mostly kept to myself, were often enough flat out wrong. Without me clouding their experience with judgment, they could more clearly and directly learn what was most valuable to them in the moment. As my wish to understand my children's perspective and choices grew, my need to judge them faded away. With it, So did most of our conflicts. Our trust in each other grew. It's important to remember, though, that not judging isn't about giving in or giving up or about saying, do whatever you want. It's about engaging even more deeply, but with the openness of beginner's mind. What can I learn here? It's about seeing the value of all aspects of life, moving through the bad moments with as much awareness as the good moments not covering your eyes and trying to ignore them until they pass. All moments are an integral part of our lives, and they are most valuable when we're paying attention and learning what we can from them. The Epiphany Earlier in your journey, you may have heard people in unschooling circles talk about how judging things as good or bad gets in the way of not only your children's learning, but in developing strong and trusting relationships with them. I imagine it made some sense on an intuitive level, but mostly it was just another piece of the puzzle floating around in your mind. And as you begin this stage, you may not yet have enough puzzle pieces to grasp what this not judging thing might look like in the bigger picture. And then at some point, the piece appears that changes everything. The moment that sparks this epiphany as with so many other insights on our unschooling journey, may be quite ordinary. But this one, for some reason, is the puzzle piece that gives you that flash of insight. All of a sudden, you can see the picture you're building and how the various pieces fit together. Where earlier on your journey, you probably thought that no longer judging situations would muddy the waters intolerably, 
Does that mean everything is good? (laughs) Almost paradoxically, you see things more clearly now. The naivety of our urge to judge becomes apparent, and our understanding of the value of all experiences, good, bad, and otherwise, rises out of the confusing free-for-all we first envisioned. How does this play out in our lives? It doesn't mean that no more bad moments happen in our lives. Our lives go on just as they ever did. But our perspective has changed. Fear loses much of its power. We stop desperately trying to avoid or escape bad moments, understanding that they, while not what we hoped for, are just moments. We grow to trust ourselves to handle whatever kind of moment comes our way. A beautiful sense of confidence begins to take root as we more mindfully engage in all the moments of our days. And we see our children living this trust and confidence. It's something humans are born knowing, but we lost track of growing up immersed in judgment, shame, and fear. As always, the children are our guides. And then it hits us. Life isn't about trying to avoid bad moments so we can finally live our good lives. We've been living our full lives all along. Embracing the Value of Time On this more spiritual leg of the journey, we're digging deeper. When we start a new stage, often we understand the concept intellectually, but I encourage you not to stop there. There's a deeper level of understanding that you'll reach as you continue to poke and prod, looking at the ideas from this way and that, up close and far away. That's why de-schooling takes time. The typical guideline is a month for each year of schooling, and as adults, we've probably had at least 12 years of school, so expect to be actively de-schooling for at least a year, though I suspect you'll never be done. I'm not. If you are persistent, you will reach deeper levels of understanding, moving from comprehension, the ideas make sense, to experience, you've seen the ideas in action with your children, and then to truth. You've seen them play out multiple times in multiple circumstances. I encourage you to revisit many of these unschooling ideas again in six months, a year, two years from now, and I bet you'll be delighted to find that you understand them more deeply. This stage is a great example of this. If discovering the truths around learning and parenting in the last two stages was akin to adding new landmarks to your map, This stage was about taking the time to explore them more fully, eventually revealing the secluded trails that connect them. We also get our first taste of the fruits of this inner journey. Releasing the need to be constantly judging things is so freeing. Time is a priceless and integral component of both our journey to understand and embrace unschooling and of the practice of unschooling itself. Seeing the value of time in our lives and in our children's lives and relinquishing our need to control and manipulate it has enabled us to put together the puzzle pieces that make up this bigger picture truth about life. The insight I gained on this leg of the journey was incredibly valuable. We've gone from intellectually understanding that life encompasses good and bad moments to experiencing the learning about the world and about ourselves that is found in both kinds of moments, to embracing the truth that 
all moments, good, bad, and all manner of in-between moments have value. We've also seen how all these moments are connected in the bigger picture of time, informing each other as they flow through the ups and downs of our days. When we are choosing our experiences, no matter their outcome, what we learn from them shapes us into the person we want to be moving forward. We are always learning through the ups and the downs, through the good and the bad. It's life. Or, as Campbell describes it, the nature of being. Stage 9. Accepting our nature. Temptation is not failure. Welcome to the next stage. How are you doing? You've come a long way on your journey. Maybe you've been unschooling for months, probably longer. I imagine you're feeling a level of competence in the world of unschooling, and that's great. So what's ahead for us now on our path? This stage is all about the temptations from our old lives that may lead us to abandon or stray from our unschooling quest. Our lives have probably changed quite a bit since we were living in our ordinary world, but chances are reality rarely matches what we first envisioned our unschooling lives would look like. In his book, Essential Zen Habits, Leo Babauta, an unschooling dad who writes a lot about changing habits on his blog, zenhabits.net, calls this the mind movie. The stories and images we play over and over again in our heads and become attached to. These are our fantasies and expectations detailing what we think our unschooling lives should be. One thing I've learned is that whenever I hear the word should in my head, it's a pretty reliable clue that I'm thinking in terms of fantasy rather than reality. The Nature of Temptation Looking back, there were many days when life was exciting and wonderful, but they weren't all that way. There were days when my mind was replaying the almost utopian unschooling life I fantasized about when I first began learning about unschooling, while our actual days were stubbornly following a different script. And when I was stuck in my mind movie and things got challenging, sometimes I'd experience the pull of temptation to step off the path. We were far enough away from our old lives that I'd feel a twinge of almost nostalgia for the seeming relative ease of doing things the same way as everyone else, with parents in control and children learning according to the conventional timetable. Maybe the challenge was sibling arguments. Why can't they get along? Wouldn't it be easier to just send them to their rooms? Maybe it was a child immersed in a previously controlled or limited activity. Why won't he do other things? That can't be good for him. Would it be better if we insist he does something else for a while? Or maybe it was a child's learning. Is she really learning anything useful? Maybe our child is different. Maybe she won't learn the important things without being taught. At first, we want to ignore our growing frustration with the situation. We keep ourselves busy with other things, and maybe we find ourselves biting our tongue more and more often. Still, ignoring things doesn't work for long. The challenges seem to follow us around, confronting us at every turn. This isn't the way things are supposed to go. Surely things should be getting easier by now. 
Why do things seem to be going off the rails? We work so hard to get here. Once we can no longer ignore the issue, we feel exposed. Sure, everyone else can see it too. Then the fear of being judged a failure has us quickly looking around for someone else to blame, passing responsibility around like a hot potato. It's not our fault, we rationalize. Maybe we're tempted to blame the experienced unschoolers we know, in person or online, who made their lives seem so wonderful. Obviously, they aren't sharing what goes on behind closed doors. Or maybe the temptation is to blame our children's friends for bringing enticing things like video games into our lives. The neighbors are the bad guys. Maybe we're even tempted to blame our children, explaining to ourselves that our kids are more difficult than most. Experienced unschoolers must have kids who are easier to manage, who easily go along with whatever comes up. In time, our frustrations grow into fears, and soon we may be sorely tempted to declare the journey a bust, quit unschooling, and retreat to our ordinary world. But do these frustrations and fears really mean we aren't cut out for unschooling? Maybe. Maybe not. Certainly, doing battle with our inner demons is hard. In fact, when we find ourselves here, it might help to remind ourselves that inner change like this is so universally hard that the temptation to turn back has its own stage in the hero's journey. We are not alone. The Temptations of the Buddha As is common with mythological tales, there are many different versions of the story surrounding Buddha's encounter with the demon Mara, But details aside, it speaks well to temptations that try to lure us off our path. Siddhartha Gautama was born in the 5th century BCE in what is now Nepal and grew up a sheltered prince. At the age of 29, he decided to leave the family palace and, for the first time, encountered human suffering. He met an old man, a sick man, a dead man, and an ascetic a monk who renounces material and physical pleasures. These events eventually became known as the Four Sights. Soon after, Prince Siddhartha, deeply troubled by the suffering he saw and curious about the monk's happy and peaceful demeanor, left home and undertook a spiritual journey as a wandering ascetic. He studied with renowned yoga teachers, learning all he could from one before moving on to the next. He also spent time practicing rigorous asceticism through strict physical discipline, including near starvation. Yet, he felt enlightenment still eluded him. Then, recalling a time when, as a young boy, he had experienced a deep peace in meditation, he realized that there was a middle way, a path between the extreme self-indulgence of his youth and the extreme self-denial of asceticism. It was through the discipline of the mind. After regaining some strength, Siddhartha Gautama sat cross-legged beneath a sacred fig tree and began to meditate. As he strove for enlightenment, purifying his mind through concentration, a demon, Mara the tempter, appeared, determined to thwart his efforts. It is said that first Mara brought his three beautiful daughters to tempt Siddhartha away from his work through the pleasures of the flesh, but he was not swayed. 
Next, Mara brought forth armies of demons, trying to provoke Siddhartha's anger and break his concentration. But as they attacked, the power of his concentration turned their hurtling weapons into flowers, which fell harmlessly to the ground. Finally, Mara challenged Siddhartha's claim to the seat of enlightenment and demanded proof that he was worthy. In response, Siddhartha touched the earth with his right hand, and the earth itself spoke on his behalf, bearing witness to his claim. And with that, Mara and his army disappeared. Having weathered Mara's temptations, Siddhartha sunk even deeper into his meditation. In time, the meaning of all things became clear, and he realized enlightenment, becoming Buddha, the awakened one. Feeling great compassion for humanity, he shared his understanding of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path to End Suffering and Gain Enlightenment. This practice became known as Buddhism. Accepting Ourselves is Our Awakening One of the important insights in this stage is the realization that even though we may try to blame others for our discomfort, our frustrations are really about us, not them. The particular set of challenges that we meet in this stage to tempt us to abandon our journey will be unique to each of us. They are the demons that we personally need to conquer on our own inner journey, meaning they'll keep confronting us until we can no longer ignore them. So as Mara attempted to distract Siddhartha away from his path with companionship, we too may be tempted to distract ourselves by keeping busy so we can avoid sitting alone with our frustrations, temptations, and feelings. We might also find ourselves tempted to view our challenges in terms of conflict, a perspective Mara tried to elicit in Siddhartha. When we see things through the lens of conflict, Judgment and blame become the tools of choice, and our fears push us to protect ourselves by blaming others. And as when Mara demanded proof of Siddhartha's claim in hopes that he would abandon his journey, we too may fall prey to the voices in our heads demanding we prove unschooling is working. Maybe we're tempted to exert just a bit of control, cajoling our children into doing a couple of worksheets just to prove they are learning. If we fall prey to these temptations, we are stepping off our unschooling path. Granted, it's not the end of the world if that happens. It's much like landing on a snake in a game of snakes and ladders. You slide back on your journey and have some more work to do. Temptation wins for a while, but it needn't mark the permanent end of your journey. It's worth the effort to figure out what happened and get back on the path. It's living and learning and growing. I mentioned this was hard, right? So where can we find help in this stage? All together now, our guides. Most definitely. So often we can see patterns more clearly in our children than we can in ourselves. Those conventional voices in our head continue to hound us if we give them the slightest opening. And feeling tempted to give up on our journey is just such an opening. But in my experience, they aren't so loud when it comes to my children. When I paid attention, I saw them wrestling with challenges, fears, and temptations to quit on their learning paths. And it didn't take me long to realize that those moments were all valuable aspects of their journey, not things gone wrong. And eventually, I was able to extend that kindness to myself. 
These are the fallen logs on our path that lead us to discover the beautiful river running 30 feet away through the forest, where we can quench our thirst and rest for a time quietly within ourselves. I came to realize that the feeling of temptation to stray from a quest, any quest, was not a failure in me. I realized that the point wasn't for me to get strong enough so that I would never be tempted again, but to understand that these moments are part of life, of being human. And from there, I could more quickly and compassionately recognize them for what they were, messages about me and for me, so I could do the work to move through them. I came to accept all facets of myself the confident me, the fearful me, the tempted me, and no longer judged them as good and bad, but saw and accepted them all as part of my nature. Living Mindfully With time and experience, I learned to recognize these moments of temptation more quickly, and I found my most useful tool was the idea of living mindfully. To me, that means being curious and paying attention to what's going on around me, letting go of expectations and the need to control things, becoming okay with discomfort, noticing my own feelings of resistance to some things and urges to do other things, and appreciating the many things around me that I'm grateful for, big and small. When I stopped judging myself for having these moments of fear or temptation, I also stopped trying to distance myself from them by blaming others. And eventually, I was able to sit with my discomfort for a while. Discomfort became maybe not my good friend, but definitely not my enemy. In her book, The Wisdom of No Escape, Pema Chodron, an American Buddhist nun, wrote, quote, Our neurosis and our wisdom are made out of the same material. If you throw out your neurosis, you also throw out your wisdom. But if you don't throw out your neurosis, your frustration, fear, and discomfort, what do you do with them? How do you discover the wisdom that is tangled up in there? Maria Popova, founder of brainpickings.org, expanded eloquently on children's intent. Quote, Holding one's imperfection with gentleness is not the same as resignation or condoning harmful behavior. Rather, it's a matter of befriending imperfection rather than banishing it, in order to then gently let it go rather than forcefully expel it. As I sat kindly with my unease, I learned what I could about myself and the roots of my needs and desires, what was behind my fantasy mind movie and then gently let go of the leftover bits I no longer wanted, the pieces that didn't mesh with the person and parent I wanted to be. Sitting with discomfort to discover what to let go. I remember back when my three children were ages 10 and under, and with them now home all day, their boundless energy was in turns amazingly beautiful and overwhelming. Keeping up with them was both inspiring and exhausting, leaving practically no time for anything else, including things that I wanted to do. I would also hear messages to moms, especially of younger kids, to take time for themselves. It seemed to apply precisely to my situation, yet it didn't feel good to me either. I was stuck in that feeling of overwhelm and growing frustration, not seeing any way through it to the other side. 
so I sat with my discomfort. As I dug into it, I found that I felt like I could never get a break, that it was all kids all the time. I felt like I was a mom all the time and didn't have time to be me. When I found that thought, it seemed like I was finally getting somewhere, that I'd caught a glimpse of the root of my discomfort. I kept digging. Why are mom and me two different things? Am I a different person when I'm with my kids? Is mother a role I'm playing? I'm thinking of my life as divided into two slices, time with the kids when I meet their needs and ignore mine, and time without the kids when I meet my needs and can ignore theirs. And I keep looking for time without the kids so I can finally meet my needs without actually leaving the kids. No wonder that wasn't working. Once I found the root of the issue, the two thoughts that were at odds with each other, I could figure out which one was really true for me. What kind of parent do I want to be? I don't want to be a parent that feels she needs to escape her kids to be her true self. I want to be myself even when I'm with my kids. I don't want to view mother as a role I play. It is an integral part of me. And my needs, the things that nurture me, are also an integral part of me. That meant that the thought that wasn't working for me, the one to gently let go of, was that I needed time without the kids to meet my needs. Sweet! I understood where it came from. It was a piece of parenting wisdom that I'd come across regularly, but now I knew that it was yet another piece of conventional advice that I wanted to release. And why? When I understand my why, not only can I brainstorm ways to address the root of the issue, I can more quickly walk myself through it if, and more probably when, this issue resurfaces. Remember, this isn't a battle to judge, overpower, and eliminate parts of ourselves. It's about accepting that these ups and downs are part of our nature. And learning that with understanding, self-awareness, and knowing the tools that work for us, we can move through these down moments with much more grace. And then, without the constraint of the belief that I need to find alone time to fully be myself, needs included, the possibilities opened up. I realized that this separation between being me and being a mother was actually being fed by the conventional presumption that being a full-time parent was second-class work. You'll be bored spending all day with your kids if you don't turn off half your brain and look forward to time away from your kids to replenish the real you. See how they feed each other? I thought I valued my work as a mother before this stage, but now I understood it at a whole new level. Once I decided to bring my full self to each day without judgment, I found so many real reasons why I would choose to get on the floor and play face-to-face with my children, to take them to the park, to make messes with them. I also started looking for ways to share and nurture other aspects of myself, while being with my children. For me, sometimes it was suggesting puzzle games, my favorite kind of game, or reading a magazine nearby as they played or watched TV, or reaching for an almost meditative state during repetitive activities like pushing a swing or separating Lego pieces, 
a candle lit in the kitchen while I tidied or prepared food, a light nap as they were engrossed in a movie, a walk around the block giving us all new things to look at, including me appreciating the neighbor's front gardens and maybe picking up some ideas, a quiet coffee and a book for a half hour before the kids woke up. The whole me is always there, and these activities were re-energizing. I was no longer desperately looking for alone time to replenish myself. I brought all of me to my days with my kids, and when I wanted time alone or with friends, I arranged that, not as an escape from them, but as part of being me. When I was the mom and the person I wanted to be at the same time, my days became more expansive, and I felt more fully myself for the first time in a long time. Undercurrent of Joy In this stage, we learn to accept rather than fight our nature. We move beyond judging ourselves so that we can mindfully move through these moments of temptation, learn what we can, and continue on our journey. And it doesn't stop there. In this deeper acceptance of myself and the resulting freer flow of our days, I discovered an undercurrent of joy running through our lives, like a subterranean river flowing beneath all of our experiences and through all my different states of mind. This is yet another aspect of the flow of time we discussed in the last stage, another aspect of the nature of being. This more expansive lens of time inspired another shift in my perspective on lifelong learning. Learning is not the work of childhood. Learning truly can happen at any age. This was a deeper level of understanding I found in the unschooling truth that children are always learning. It grew to humans are always learning. As my fears faded, I realized that in the grand scheme of things, most unpleasant, distressing moments aren't as dire as they first appear. I found I could be more present with both happiness and disappointment in those moments, as Maria described, without taking an internal roller coaster ride because I no longer equated the deep, longer-term sense of joy I felt inside with the emotions of the moments I was in. And I discovered that my joy was rooted in knowing more deeply that I was in control of my life, no one else. I was free to make the choices that made sense to me without judging myself. And there I was, back full circle. Looking back now, I realized that I instinctively understood the immense value and beauty of our days once I discovered that undercurrent of joy long before I discovered the concept of the hero's journey. I know that because way back in 2004, two years after the start of my unschooling journey, I incorporated it into my website name, livingjoyfully.ca. I hope you found this episode helpful on your unschooling journey. And be sure to check out the wonderful archive of earlier podcast episodes. The conversations never go out of date. And you can find more information about my books, my Patreon community, and the Childhood Redefined Unschooling Summit at my website, livingjoyfully.ca. Have a great day.